It is the walk-off. I'm Holden Kushner with Ryan Spader, the Ace of Spader. And this is our special guest tonight. I'm looking forward to this. Good good idea, Ryan Spader, Dodgers TV analyst. He also is a scout for the San Jose Sharks of the NHL. And he is was also the GM of the Dodgers. There's a few pretty good players. You might have heard of like Bellinger and Seager that he drafted. His name is Ned Coletti, and he joins us. Ned, it is so good to always talk with you. How the heck have you been? I've been good, Holden. Good to hear your voice. We spent a lot of time talking baseball a few years ago. And, Ryan, always good to be with you, too. I really appreciate it, Ned. So the Dodgers is just – I just want to jump right into this. My goodness. The offense – the Padres have a great offense. The White Sox have a great offense. But this is like nothing I've seen before. Uh, can you just give us an overview, if people don't stay up late enough on the East Coast, because a lot of people don't, just how good is this offense, Ned? Well, it's it's almost a, a throwback lineup to the American League uh, with with great powerhouses like the Yankees or the Indians in the 90s, teams that really had great hitters one through nine. And, and the Dodgers have that. And of all the teams, uh, when the National League said we're going to do the DH for at least this next season, the season we're in, uh, a lot of teams probably looked at their roster to try and figure out, oh, who's going to fit that role? The Dodgers probably breathed a sigh of relief and said, good. We can get another good player, four or five at bats in the course of a game. So um, they are loaded. They've got a lot of talent, a lot of depth, a lot of experience. They've won the West the last seven years. And they're really they're merging some young players into the mix, too. Edwin Rios has got great power, left-handed hitter. You've got Dustin May and Tony Gonsolin pitching for him uh, in the rotation as young guys. So for me, they're doing the toughest thing in, in baseball, and that's winning and developing at the same time. Typically, you can't do both. Ned, I got to ask you, so I think when this season comes to an end, we're going to look at what the Dodgers record uh, is, and right now they're sitting at a 721 winning percentage, which is 117 over the course of 162. Do you think that this is going to end up being one of those seasons where, uh, not unlike 1994, where people project for a very long time as to what could have been over the course of a full season? And um, do you think that going into the postseason that this uh, odd season that we're having takes away from any of the accomplishments of any of the teams? Well, um you know, it, it takes away a little bit for the 162-game grind. So I'd say, yeah, you know, if if you're going to prorate home runs and wins and different things like that, yeah, it's it's probably an unfair season to be doing something like that. So that will change. However, when you get to the postseason, I think the best teams in baseball will be in the LCSs, and the two best teams out of that will be in the World Series. I think that doesn't matter. I think it, it's even harder now because you've got one extra round. You've got that that first round of winning two out of three. 
So the Dodgers, as good as they are, they're going to have to play the eighth seed most likely. And we know how it goes. You know, you get the you get a certain eighth seed in there that's got some starting pitching. You know, the Dodgers could be out after two games. Unlikely, but it's not it's not impossible if you got the Mets or you got Cincinnati or a team that's got some some strong high end starting pitching. Who knows? So. I think whoever wins the World Series, yeah, is it going to be a historic year in, a, in a, everywhere you look and every way you look? No doubt. But will that team have earned has earned it? I don't think there's any doubt because I think the best teams will still be there. They won of the 106, 102 games. They will have played less, but they will have played the 60 under more duress and under more different circumstances than anybody who's ever competed at this level. Same with the NHL, the, the NBA. I'm going to start with the NFL in a couple minutes here. So, you know, it's it's different, but I don't think it's going to take away from anybody who wins a championship. None of it is easy. None of it's going to be handed to anybody. And I think the best of the group, whether no matter what the sport is, that's who's going to be playing. I agree with you. And one other thing that I want to ask you, somewhat on the same topic, is um, we saw Bellinger get out to sort of a slow start coming off his MVP season. And um, I think because his numbers are skewed, and they're going to be skewed for the course of the season, the fact that he's got an OPS over 1,000 for his last 15 isn't something people are really talking about. The fact that he's got an OPS nearly 1,000 over his last 21 isn't something that's really going to be talked about. Do you think that uh, looking at a guy like Cody Bellinger, who, of course, was an MVP last year, um, over the course of history, people are going to look at this season with um, sort of a stink eye, I guess? Well, and I think when you look at, at player stats, yeah, that, that's going to – people are always going to look at that in a different view. And, you know, I'd, I'd be – I think it, it's – it's hard to project. I get a lot of salary arbitration cases and people from time to time for injured players would try to project what they would do if they played a full season. Well, there's, there's too many dynamics to that. There's too many things that come and go. There's, there's too much of a, of a different variable to, to ever really project. I think, yeah, will people look at it differently? Sure they will. The batting title, things like that. Um, but there's no other choice. That, that's the choice we're given. It's not like we're making a decision to to say, well, let's look at this differently because it's not different. No, it is different. There's, the whole world is different. Everything about it is different. And so I think, yeah, will it be different? Yes. Will it be easier, easily accomplished, whatever anybody accomplishes? Not necessarily, because everybody else is playing too. And in some cases, you know, we don't know what everybody's going through. We don't know if, you know, people are away from their families for a long period of time. We don't know if somebody's got a young child that's that's uh, uh, you know, a newborn and, and they're worried about that or they have a sickness in their family or they have somebody with the virus. So you have a lot of other factors, too. It's just not, hey, they're going to they're going to get away with this because they're not going to have to produce over six months. They're going to produce over two months. So we can't really say it has as much value. Well, that's easily to say that, but we don't necessarily know what everybody's walked. We don't always know every, the shoes everybody's in. So I think that there's no other way around it. You're going to look at it. We're going to look at it and say, you know what? It was a really, really challenging year in a lot of ways. Sports played less games in, in baseball. The NBA, the NHL uh, went and, and played a few games and then started a playoff season. Uh, it's all different. But I think it's it's the way the world is. It's the world. It's all different. So 
you know, it's it's just par for the course. But going back to the first the first part of this discussion, the champion will still be the champion. There's there's no denying that that person that person that team uh, will have really really done everything they needed to do to get there. In my opinion. Yeah, I think it actually might be more of a test for the 40-man roster as opposed to just like a 25, 26-man roster, you know, because organizations just have to go and they got to go down so deep in some uh, some cases where you got the taxi squad. You know, Ned, I don't think organizations have been challenged like like this, at least in you know my lifetime. I, I can't imagine it's just happened before. The depth of all the organizations is really going to be a difference, too, at least in the regular season. Well, agreed. And I think in the, 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 the next page to that discussion is really the harm that it is doing to teams that are in that rebuild mode. You know, I, I still keep, keep in touch with a lot of GMs, former GMs that are still with organizations. And some of them are you know, on the way to losing, you know, four, 60% of their games type of thing where, you know, there were going to be 90 lost teams, but they were counting on watching the players they've drafted recently, the players they've acquired who are high picks and high prospect level play this year and compete this year in a minor league setting. And that doesn't exist. You've got guys working out. We've got them over at USC, you know, so it's, you know, a lot of players are losing a year of development, I think. And and that, uh, that remains to be seen how that, how that gets sorted out later because a lot of teams count on that. A lot of teams that had quote the five year plan, you know, is a five year plan now a six year plan, because you've got you've got a year where so many players were stalled because of, of an activity. Of course, then you got the whole minor league situation too, a contraction coming down the road. So, a lot of different factors in your development. But in the here and now, it's it's going to be challenging for those teams in the rebuild mode to take advantage of this year that uh, they would have taken advantage of in a regular season. But not the way it is. But it's also really weird because maybe one of those teams ends up in the playoffs. You know, like the Marlins. Yeah. Who the well, there's hell no knows? Doubt. There's no doubt. There's going to be two or three teams that are, are going to be maybe under 500, maybe over 500. And that's the decision people have made. I mean, if this was a regular season, you would have a lot of fan bases that were at least excited that the team they thought was in rebuild mode actually, you know, they may be uh, you know 28 and 32 when the season ends, but they're playing the number one seed. And they they may have good young pitching, and they may end up winning a round or so. You know, I I find that interesting. You know, there's a lot of new rules, a lot of different things that have come into the game. I'm not so sure about that one yet, and I'm not so sure that the the team that does win a division uh, is all they have is a home field advantage with no fans playing against the eighth seed. I think it almost ought to be different. Well, like the NBA did a few years ago, where um, they've only got to win one game, and the uh, the eighth seed's got to win two. Uh, you know, but there's different ways of looking at it. You know, a lot of different changes, a lot of different rules, seven inning doubleheaders, starting extra innings with a runner on second base, which I wasn't going to like, but I, I kind of do like it. I hope the National League goes back to not having a DH. I think the Dodgers will actually benefit less going forward because of their depth, because a lot of their guys aren't going to get a chance to play. You're not switching guys out. You're not double switching. There's been a handful of games lately where the Dodgers bench has not gotten into a game. <laughs> Ned, it truly because, is amazing. Yeah, go on, Spader. Sorry about that. 
No, it's not. Uh, so because, like you said, you've you've flipped on the one rule, and I haven't completely flipped myself. Although I see the appeal for some people, are you going into the um, the new postseason with an open mind? Uh, because I, I am inclined to agree with you. I think that fan bases, even during a 162 game season that would otherwise be tapped out, you know, maybe the think of the Diamondbacks or something, uh, where the, those those fans are tapping out and they're switching gears to the Arizona Cardinals um, are maybe hanging around later in the season because they might pick up a seven or eight seed. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's, look, I'm all for what's good for the game. And sometimes that will, will not benefit the organization I'm with. Um, but I am, I am for what betters the game and what keeps people interested in it and what grows the game and grows its popularity and those who play it. And certainly this year has been a, a challenge across the board in every walk of life. Uh, so you, you got that. But I do think that it, it's – I think it's okay under these circumstances that you have a team that may go 28 and 32 and make it and and have a chance to, you know, to cause somebody some grief in the in the first round, you know, and, and, and knock off a, a potential champion. Um, I think that's good for it. It is a little bit – a little bit different, you know. Baseball's been the one sport that uh, before you had the wild card playing game. You know, it's one game after you play 162, which to me is a little bit, a little bit rugged to display the one. Um, but baseball is the toughest sport to have have uh, playoff teams. You know, for the most part, you had you had 30 teams, and before you had the playing game, you had eight make it. You had four in each league, three division champions, and one wild card team. And and so it was really a select group that got to the postseason, and you really had to earn that. Nobody got in there that didn't really earn it. Now you're gonna you're gonna add you're gonna double it pretty much. Yeah, you're gonna have some teams in there that you know other you know they'd be they'd be at the house already, and uh, but they're gonna have a chance to play. So I guess if it grows the game, I guess that's fine. I still think you ought to respect the division champion uh, to the utmost, and and probably make it where. Uh, if it's a two out of three, they've got to win one. The other team's got to got to win two or three, you know. And so I think that's that's probably you know, where I come out on some of that. Ned, I know you got to run, but I, I want to flip gears on you really quickly. As you know, I um, thoroughly enjoyed your book. Uh, I read it in about a sitting. Um, I think a lot of people maybe who haven't read your book, uh, well, first of all, they're missing out, but they um, they don't realize how. Uh, how you came up through the game. I, I mean, you were a Philadelphia Flyers beat writer before you got into media relations with the Cubs and then uh, then with the Giants, I believe. Uh, and then, of course, eventually the Dodgers GM. Um, can you just give us a quick uh, how, uh, overview as to when did this all seem possible to you to eventually become the person in the big chair? Oh, great question, Ryan. Um you know, we all grow up different ways and we all have uh, different expectations of what life could look like. Um, I grew up with great parents, but I also grew up in a very uh, blue collar and very uh, actually factory oriented environment. Um, and we lived, my parents lived in a garage for the first 10 years of their marriage. I came along five years in and I have a younger brother. Um, and so I grew up living in a garage in Chicago. And then we moved into a four-room house, not four bedrooms, but four rooms that was less than 900 square feet. And um, you know, I learned great work ethic 
from my parents. My mom uh, was a stay-at-home mom. She was uh, the wife, the the cook, the homemaker, the organizer, the the, the teacher at night, and and the boss of all, you know. And my dad, my dad labored. My dad worked hard just to to make ends meet and to put food on the table and and those types of things that you know you hear stories about. And um, so I learned all that, and I, I I played sports. I was uh, I was good enough to captain teams. I was not good enough to play professionally, and I knew it. And I was a three sport guy. I played baseball and I played soccer when hardly anybody played it, and I played ice hockey. And uh, of course, growing up in Chicago, your baseball season is really abbreviated because of weather. You're either playing in March or April with uh, you know with snow in the air and with football starting up at the high school collegiate level, a lot of guys, a lot of teams would disband when you got to early August. So shortened season, but I played a lot and I learned the game and I, I was a frequent visitor to Wrigley Field to see my Cubs play. They were my Cubs at that point in time. They haven't been my Cubs for 25 years, but it's uh, I just learned the game. And I went, I went a lot of times by myself and I would sit in the bleachers in left center field at Wrigley Field to watch pitching. And I get there early to watch BP, and I got to befriend some players, a guy named Ron Santo, Hall of Famer, who became a very good friend of mine. And then I had a chance to work with him when my career started in the in the big leagues. But I, I just paid attention, and I and I worked hard, and I hoped that somebody would notice. And um, I was always the first guy in, the last guy out, and uh, I never gave my boss uh, a chance to say, what's he doing, where's he at, how come he's not here? I was always there, and I took on as much responsibility as I could, whether I was being compensated for it or not. I, I just, I just hoped that at some point in time somebody would notice, and um, little by little they did. And so I went from the Cubs, 13 years, and the first two division championships they had. Uh, 1984 was their first time at a postseason since 1945, so 39 years had gone by. We got beaten San Diego, of course, in a, a five-game LCS. There was just the LCS and then the World Series. We had a almost almost World Series team, won the first two, lost the next three. In uh, 80, 89, played the Giants and got beat uh, in, in five games. They had uh, expanded it out a little bit. So um started there and, and started to take on as much responsibility as I could, learn to scout, learn to develop players, um, set you know, spent many nights till two, three, four in the morning listening to people talk about the game. Rarely saying anything in my early days, just to listen, just to be around a guy like Dallas Green, my first boss, or Lee Elia, the first manager who I still stay in touch with, and then Jimmy Fry, who just passed away in January, who had coached for Earl Weaver for a decade and had all this incredible experience and and the ways the games were played, and you know, Don Zimmer, somebody else, and. I can go on and on, John Vukovic and Billy Connors and people who took time and, and gave, me, uh, gave me a chance to listen and gave me a chance to ask questions. And I was respectful always and continued to, to gain knowledge. And while everybody else was uh, you know, having a picnic or playing softball or, or doing things like that, I was at the ballpark. And uh, I'm, I'm still to some extent the same way. So I missed a lot of life. I missed a lot of family time. I missed a lot of different things like that. But again, how I grew up, where you where you didn't have any financial wherewithal and you were living in a garage or in a tiny little house, uh, you could never give up and you could never stop and you could never take anything for granted. And I think it's really just the last couple of years I've been doing TV now. I think this is my fifth season. We've won three Emmys. I had the big chair, which you're kind to 
to talk about uh, turned out to be a bestseller. Was 22 weeks in three different categories in the top 10 on Amazon, and you know surprised me because I wrote it not intending to sell it. I wrote it just to get some things out of my mind and into onto paper with no inclination to ever put it in public. And one thing led to another. I did that. I I teach at Pepperdine, which is a great university, top 50 in the country. And they sent me to London last summer to teach abroad. I, I was not a good high school. I couldn't even get into a four-year school. No <laughs> four-year school would take me when I graduated from high school. And I ended up going to Northern Illinois University after two years of a junior college, Triton Junior College, where Kirby Puckett went and, and Lance Johnson went and Jeff Rubelet went and a few others that made it to the show. And uh, two years ago, they invited me back as the alumnus of the year. I was floored. They wouldn't even let me in the school as a high school graduate, right? I couldn't even go to school there. And uh, Northern's great, but it's not necessarily the Harvard or the Midwest, you know. And so uh, I just kept working. And I went to San Francisco, and I did that for 11 years. I left my family behind for the most part and um, and learned and sat with Brian Sabian day after day, two young executives, getting our feet wet a little bit with more responsibility. And I think saves, I think the world of him. I think he's a Hall of Fame general manager. And, uh, you know, we tested each other. We we, we worked at, at, at conversation, having in-depth conversations, again, till one, two, three in the mornings, taking different sides, looking through different viewpoints to try and get the team to be the best it could be. If you look back at the Giants from those eras, they were always $20, $30 million behind the Dodgers. And this is when payrolls were probably at the utmost 70 to $100 million. The Dodgers were at 80 the Giants were at 50 And for many years, Giants beat the Dodgers, which I think is what attracted Frank McCourt to to finding out who else was, was doing something in San Francisco besides saves. And, and that's how I got the call and the nod and, and did that. And then I, I came to L.A. and we, we the team I inherited was 71-91. and 91. It was the second worst team in the history of the L.A. part of the franchise. And I, I hadn't been used to losing. We'd won, won a lot of games in San Francisco. I think we were out of the race in my last nine years in the Bay Area. We were out of the race, eliminated 15 days out of nine seasons, not many. So I came to LA and it was time to, you know, to get the thing going again. And, um, we, we made some changes right away. I, I signed Billy Miller, who I knew from the giants had been a batting champion with the championship Red Sox, Nomar Garcia Parra, who I'm honored to do TV with now signed him, Kenny Lofton, Raphael for And we won 88 games and tied San Diego for the West. Got run out by the Mets in the first round. And uh, took a step back in 07, my second year. And then in 08 and 09, we we started to, to reap the benefits of great amateur scouting. And Matt Kemp made a pair, you know, showed up. And Andre Ether, who was my first acquisition uh, in a trade with Oakland. And, and Russell Martin and Jonathan Broxton and Chad Billingsley. And a little bit after that, Clayton Kershaw, who was my first pick my first year. Uh, and so just kept building it. Went to the postseason five times and, and uh, you know, had some... Some different adversities there with, with ownership uh, changing hands and with uh, an ownership family owned that uh, you know, were great to me. But and uh, at the same time, they went through a very public divorce, went through a, a bankruptcy, and kind of left us in a, in a in a challenging spot. But you know, you can either complain about it or you can figure out what you're going to do to make it make it better. And Don Mattingly and, and I, Donnie was our manager, and we we talk all the time about hey. Nothing we can do about this. We can't fix the divorce. We can't fix the bankruptcy. 
we're in charge of putting the team on the field and making it as good as we can do. So that's what we did. And we took a year or two where we kind of were in the middle. I think I was under 500. I think we were 80 and 82 one season. I think it might have been Joe Torrey's last year in 210. We were one game under 500. Every other team that I, I got a chance to oversee, we were over 500. And uh, LCS in, in 08 and 09 and LCS in 13 and division again in 14. And then uh, and then they made a change with me and, and took me out of the big chair, as you, as you call it there, uh, Ryan, and started my, my broadcasting career and teaching career. And then a couple of years ago, I've been friends with the NHL GMs, a lot of them, just by my, my affection for the game and my curiosity to it. Because every winter, I would spend probably a week or 10 days running around NHL cities and going up to Canada and spending time up there. Again, late-night conversations, early practices. Live it. Set, get saturated with it. Don't expect it just to be handed to you. And when the GM thing ended, I, I got a call from a couple different GMs that said, hey, if you want to switch sports, you know, we'd, we'd love to have you. You could add so much to what we do here. Is it a different surface? Yeah. Athletes are athletes. How do our hands work? How's your feet work? Um, how's your decision-making work in a very quick period of time? How are they willing to sacrifice? That, that's universal. It doesn't matter what the surface of playing is or what the payrolls are. It's all, it's all what you look for. And uh, a couple of years ago, I was talking to my, my friends in San Jose, and they said, hey, come up here for, for a year. I want to talk to you. So I went up there, and they, they offered me a chance to scout for them. And they said, let's see how this works. We'll never let it get in the way of our friendship. We'll be friends forever, but let's see if you like it. Let's see if you like it, and let's see if we think you can you can help us out, you know? And I says, you're on. And uh, yeah, they, uh, I did it for a year, and then last year, uh, I did it for a second year, and we'll be doing it for a third year coming up. Lately, this is crazy. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid-60s, guys, okay? I teach at a top 50 university. I do every Dodger game pre and post and then post game radio. I do radio during the week for the Dodgers network, 570 AM. And I scout hockey. So every night when I get home, I'm replaying a game that was played playoff game. And I've done about 35 scouting reports in the last five weeks too. So anyway, I guess I like to stay busy, but it's been, a, it's been an incredible ride. I've been blessed beyond measure in my life. Um, most of the people I grew up with don't have opportunities that I've had, and, and I've I've had to earn it. I've had nothing given to me. I didn't have a sponsor. I didn't have a door opener. I had nobody who said, hey, give Ned Coletti, that's my dad's name, give Ned Coletti's son a, a job because, uh, you know, he's a, he's a good guy. I, I never had any of that. I didn't know anybody who ever hired me. But I, but people took a chance, and I and I never let them, I never let them down. And um, I'd rather I'll over-deliver far before I'll let anybody down. So anyway, you asked, that's the, that's the short, long version of, uh, <laughs> of the story. Well, this is why I said, you said you got 15 minutes. I said 20 and now it's 25. So a couple of things. First of all, you gave us time during a game. You got to go do post games. So we're going to let you go. And then winners win, Ned. That's it. You're a winner. It's as simple as that. Um, you're a winner and congrats on all the success you had post GM as the Dodgers and, uh, it's always good to catch up with you, man. Thanks for the time. Oh, my pleasure. Ryan, I, I, I so appreciate your, your vision into the things you post and, and the different things. I learn something every time I look at one of your tweets. I learn something about the game I love. And maybe one day you'll start doing some hockey, too. 
but uh, <laughs> it's, it's been interesting. And Holden, you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, I don't know how many, what he worked three years together. We worked on, on tune in there, yeah, went to the world years, series we did in, long, in Cleveland and Chicago. Five hours. Oh, well, you know what? I, I'm going to tell you this right now. And I look back at it to this day. Um, you know, the job only lasted two years, but the fact that we got to do a broadcast from the stadium where I grew up, I know you grew up there, but to do that, totally worth it. I mean, I would not oh, yes. trade it for the, it, it put a halt to my career for about two years. I'm getting back now, just now actually, but that world series, that experience wouldn't trade it for the world. It's amazing. It was amazing. It was a great time, and I got a chance to meet you, and I and I've, I've loved the chance to get to know you and, and talk the game with you. You love the game as I do, and and so does uh, the Ace of Spader over there. You got <laughs> it, Ned. Thanks so thanks much, buddy. We appreciate the time. All right, boys. Be well. Take it easy. Best of your families. Be well. Thank right, you, very sir. Good. Have That's a good day. Ned Coletti. Love love talking with the Ned Coletti. Wonderful stuff. Wonderful stuff there, and he was nice enough to do it. <laughs> Oh, he's still there. He's still listening. I should have said bad <laughs> things about him. Um, <clears throat> that would have been interesting. But no, and this is a guy that drafted Kershaw. All these studs that you see on the Dodgers, that guy, not all of them. I take that back. But a lot of these studs, this guy drafted him, man. That's He He, he laid the foundation. And well, Friedman knows that, and he's he's been great about it. Friedman has, has taken it you know, to another level. But Ned was the guy that built that thing. Well, one that he didn't talk about, which really surprised me, is um, probably his best signing ever, and that's um, Justin Turner. Mm. Signed him for a cool million. He's still with the team. No, they talk. He talked about that at length. So we'd go out there when we were tuning. We went out to spring training. We were hanging out with the Dodgers. And I'll never forget. We're in a tent. He's like, "You see that kid over there?" I said, "Yeah." He goes, "Bellinger. That kid's gonna be the best of the bunch." And I was like, "Huh? Okay, great. He looks great." Whatever, because that's the guy. Like NBA well, player. Yep. Like the a year later, boom, Cody Bellinger's in the majors doing that. So, uh, but he just had so many guys that he brought in there. But he also says he learns a lot from your tweets. So let's get into it, man. You ready to do some Spader stats? Oh boy, Spader stats, stats. <sighs> I want to know how you just tweeted something out 26 seconds ago. Uh, How'd you do that? I didn't want to do it while he was on, but I yeah. had it prepared because I didn't want there to be a scenario where perhaps um, he went on my Twitter later on and was like, wait a second, was that asshole tweeting while he was on yeah. the show? And <laughs> so, so what uh, was I, your I, stat there? What's your stat? Because the Braves just completely went off on Wednesday night. So, yeah, the Braves' first team to score at least 22 runs through the first five innings of a game since the Blue Jays put up 24 during the first five on June 26, 1978. I was negative 11. June of 78, I was three. Do you remember the game? Yes, absolutely. Like the back of my hand. And they actually have the bases loaded. I listened right to it on a transistor radio. It's quite possible that I did, but yeah, it's it's kind of weird because you get these high run scoring games, and then the Brewers actually beat the Tigers nineteen to nothing earlier, which is the largest shutout victory by any team. Right? Since the Brewers themselves actually did it on uh, April twenty second, two thousand ten, beating the Pirates twenty to nothing. But this is what I actually enjoyed about this little fun fact is that um it was the largest shutout uh, of the Tigers 
and not just the Tigers, but any Detroit franchise in baseball history to include the Wolverines of 1881 to 1888. Nice. Nice. That's good to hear. I like that. I do have another question for you, sir. Kind sir. I have one more question for you, okay? Um, can you give me the one about uh, Rogers Hornsby? I like ah, that guy. I know totally that underrated. Off, I know that one off the top of my head, but I don't know the dates, so I'm going to have to pull it. I can tell you one of the dates. It's September 9th because um, that's why I would have pulled it up today. But, um, yeah, here you go. Rogers Hornsby maintained a 400 batting average over the span of 762 games from September 9th, 1920 to May 30th, 1926. Now, um, I, I couldn't help but notice you were calling him a good guy. You know, you might get some heat for that on, on Twitter. Did I call him a good guy? I say he's underrated. Oh, I don't know. All right. Well, if I called him a good guy, was he a bad guy? Uh, he was apparently in the KKK or something. I don't know. Well, that's not a good guy. That's a horrible person. Yeah. So good baseball player, horrible person. So, uh, what a dick. Yeah. So are you but serious? I, I don't, the KKK? Like I don't. I don't know. Really? I, it's just anytime I tweet about Hornsby, I'm sure if you click on that fact, you can find people being like, yeah, but he was in the KKK, and I'm like, what, was he? I didn't know that. That's, what a dick. Yeah, good thing really? he's been dead. Good thing he's been dead for 80 years. Wiki, Wikipedia would not. Well, he was. He was from Texas. Which back in the late 1800s probably was not the uh, most inclusive place in the world. We'll put it that way. Now, I don't see anything on Wikipedia is all I'm saying. Okay? Be very unfortunate if he did. Still an amazing feat, too. 400, but he's a piece of shit. Um, hold on. Wait. I am finding on Wikipedia. That he was not in the KKK, no. hopefully. It says... We're really on Wikipedia. So this is – I don't talk Rogers Hornsby, so I don't know what this means. But um, it says, yeah, he was a KKK member. Oh, well, that's, well, that's it. I'm done with Rogers Hornsby. I'm out. Oh, man, so is Trish Speaker apparently. I don't know how much. Oh, no, uh, seriously? Is there like a – you know, it's, it's probably like a website, just baseball players that were in the KKK. That's This is disheartening, man. Oh, yeah, they don't like my uh my my ancestors either. No, no, these guys are mean. All right, I'm totally down on Rogers Hornsby and Tris Speaker. So, yeah, but I, the thing is, I've never seen any um, and I'm not saying the dude wasn't. In, uh, Conf- you've never seen confirmation. No, I've I've only. I seen want to give like him the right benefit of the doubt. Then. I've only seen secondhand stories to throw it back. <laughs> I would love. I would love. Um, I would love for this to be wrong. I should not have jumped to conclusions, but well, he's I don't know. Dead for fifty-seven years. Yeah, still. Oh man. According to legendary baseball writer Fred Lieb, he was a member of the KKK. Yeah, I don't know how much I trust the media. <laughs> oh man. And he died in Chicago in nineteen sixty-three. All right. Well, that was a great way to end this walk-off, don't you think? Yeah, fantastic. We yeah, just had one of our more fun, uh, one of our better talkers uh, out of like 40 interviews, and we close it out with Rogers Hornsby potentially being in the KKK. Yeah, you could have just passed over. I could have. My life would have been fine without knowing that. But, uh, you know, you decided to bring it up and rain on my parade. So thank you very much. Appreciate that, buddy. 
Uh, he's the Ace of Spader on Twitter, at the Ace of Spader. I'm at Holden Radio. And, hey, thank you very much for listening to The Walk-Off.